I think my goal is always to make peace with food and to normalize their experience with food. And so if we look at just the origin of the word diet, which means way of life, that I'm trying to put food back into a proper perspective in life. I'm just trying to help people to embrace it and it no longer has to be the center of their universe, but they can get about living and enjoying the other things that make up life. That was Dr. Mary Van Nortwick, Director of Nutritional Programs and Dietetics at IntelliHealth, sharing her approach to treating patients with obesity and overweight. And you're listening to Weight Matters, where we unpack the science behind our weight, why it matters, and the effects it has on our health, psychology, and society. This season, join Drs. Louis Aroni and Katherine Saunders, leading experts in the field of obesity medicine and co-founders of IntelliHealth, as they tackle the many ways weight impacts our broader health and along with experts in the field, explore innovative strategies for preventing and treating obesity. In this episode, Dr. Van Nortwick explains why fad diets are not effective, and she describes how a personalized approach to treatment can help patients transform their relationships with food and nutrition. She also discusses the emotional factors that often influence how people eat and shares some helpful strategies for managing those emotions. We're glad to have you along for this journey. There's a lot to discuss, so let's dive in. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. We are very excited to have you here today. If you wouldn't mind starting with a little bit of information about yourself, how you became interested in nutrition, about your career, how you got to where you are, we would love to hear your story. Thank you very much for having me. And my story starts with a pretty atypical career path for a dietitian. I have always, across time, and it's 35 years in in the field, straddled between the business setting and the clinical setting. And that's because I find food and nourishment on a continuum. So I've been very involved in the opportunity to source clean product, to prepare it, produce it, actually manufacture it for sale, set it up for selection, and wanting to influence people at the point of decision when it comes to choosing better for themselves. And sitting squarely on that continuum is, is truly nourishment, clinical nutrition. And so on the other side, we look at the relationship with food uh, and the context that all of that takes place in, whether it's a social environment or an isolated one. And I've had the opportunity to work in a variety of settings, but always landing and always coming back to the opportunity to teach and empower people when it comes to food and nutrition choices. Welcome, Mary. It's great having you on as a guest. We work together with patients on a regular basis through IntelliHealth and otherwise. And I wonder if you'd be able to tell our audience how you develop a personalized nutrition plan for your patients. Sure. I think the place to start would be to speak specifically about the emphasis on personalized. It starts with the personality. And I have worked with patients for such a long time, and I factor that in right from the beginning. And around beginning to get a sense for the personality, I begin to listen for the patient's story. All the while, as you know, we are gathering up clinical information, historical information. We're trying to understand what resources they have available to them, the environment that they're living in, working in, even playing in. 
And then we dig deeper so that we can understand the relationship that they have with food and how that it has developed over time. Because we're going to need to speak into that, if you will, and begin an intervention where we begin to understand where they may have some thinking that could be used to build on and where they may have some changes to the environment that would support them down a journey where we might need to do a coordination of care in the medical arena, what their expectations are for the sessions that we would do and the goals that they have to achieve. So in personalizing it, we take all that information and begin to build, if you will, their own plan. What will it be made up of? What do they want to do first? What do they feel most ready for? And then we begin to um, have it unfold one piece at a time. And I can say, even as a dietitian and nutritionist, sometimes it doesn't start with food. What would it start with? Well, we like to start with the why, and we look for what they're most ready to work on. So for some people, it's just an environment of clutter. And that clutter keeps them from doing a good meal plan, shopping to have the right foods around. Other people, they don't really have a support system in place. There's some things that are working against them or even the people that they're sharing meals with. And it feels that they can't really take care of themselves because they're busy taking care of others. So sometimes we begin to work on self-care and the way that they think about it, the way they see themselves in the bigger picture. And then from there, we can move toward the plate because it's been my experience across 35 years of working with patients and many of those years working with you that all roads lead to the plate. Mary, I love how you always say we eat the way we live. What you just described really exemplifies why we eat the way we live is so important and why being a dietitian is so much more than just advising people on on what to eat. A lot of our patients will often say to us when we suggest that they see a dietitian, oh, I don't need to see a dietitian. I know what I should be eating. I'm just not doing it. And so what we do is explain to them that it's really not just about speaking to a dietitian about what to eat and about learning about food, it's so much more than that. And it's so much more addressing all of the barriers that you're talking about and figuring out everything else that's surrounding food. When you see patients who want to really focus on food, how do you get them to open up to you about talking about everything else in their life that's so intimately related and, and connected to what they're eating? That's a very good question. And it's a very relational exchange that has to be built. For some people, they're more comfortable going there quickly, and other people, it definitely takes time. So in the concept of meeting people where they are and listening for some cues that they will give you in terms of how ready they are to open up, one of the practices that I engage in is looking at their life on a timeline. And so wait, where did it begin? Where did the struggle begin? And it could be very early years or in pregnancy or with a move or with a divorce. Grief is often tied up with it. And as they begin to tell the story in a timeline fashion, it begins to open up some connecting points. And it isn't so much about what they know and don't know, because a lot of people know a lot of things and a lot of it good. It's that where does it come to bear now? or reminding them that they know it, or how would they use it? Because people do know they can actually recite things back to you, but they can't translate it. They don't know how to take 
action on it. And so as a nutritionist, you come alongside them. And so maybe it starts with the food. Maybe we start talking about what are the barriers in the food supply? Is it a scarcity issue? Is it overabundance? Is it the way that their work schedule is? And then we begin to dismantle it a little bit at a time in a very safe way that people can begin to see small wins early on. And then I think from there, it's sort of contagious. It kind of grows where they'll bring back the next issue and then we unpack it. We make a goal around it. We do some brainstorming and then we go forward. So it sounds like what you're describing is really about problem solving. The patient has issues that are preventing them from succeeding and you help them to solve the problems around that. Very much so. And that really has at its core tapping into some of the prior successes, looking at where they have had some learnings that they've gathered up along the way. They may have done this four or five times, but what did they learn along the way? Perhaps there's been nobody to unpack that with them and to help them to actually synthesize some takeaways that will help them go forward. So when were they successful? Why were they not successful? And what would be a reasonable solution and a solution that fits in their world? That's the key. It's not just from a list of possibilities. It's about their world. It has to integrate with their lifestyle, their interests, their people. I love the way, Mary, you always talk about your philosophy and your clinical tidbits. It's just, it's wonderful to listen to the way you approach a patient. I saw a few patients this morning for the first time, and whenever I meet a new patient, I ask them about their history and what's worked, what hasn't worked. And so many patients will tell us that they've tried so many different fad diets. What is your feeling about fad diets and why they do or don't work? I think of fad diets as being emotionally charged. I think it's a little bit of a cry of desperation because there's something that needs immediate relief. And they tend to be extreme. they most often very temporary. They're sensationalized. And I try to work on imparting a more systems biology understanding where I'm helping people to connect the dots between the food supply, the way that the body's going to use it, how they're going to feel about it. And in this case, we're talking about the end game very often is, is around weight, but there's a lot of other conditions associated with weight. And so looking at it sort of in, I was a systems dietitian from the very beginning, which is input, throughput, output, but looking at it in just those terms, what what is your body going to do with that? Whether we're going to talk about the fad or whether I'm going to move in the direction of what is the body actually designed to have and what's the upside of going in that direction, the sustainability of it. And it's like throwing a giant stop sign up and giving people a moment to catch their breath. I'm not sure they really want to do another fad diet, but I don't know that they know what to put in its place. And so part of our exchange might be, you know, looking at it through that lens and seeing how they might want to begin to take up the better parts of good nutrition where they feel like they could begin that journey, what would feel like not too big of a lift, and then we could go from there. If I need to meet somebody in that fad diet mentality, I have to go where they are. So that's where we'll go. And then we try to understand over the course of time that biology always wins. And so we'll, we'll journey together, see what we can do to integrate the good along with the thought process of a fad, but then eventually turn it in the direction that we would want 
good nutrition to manifest in somebody's life. So it sounds like this is truly a customized approach. But let's talk about some of the the mega trends that are out there right now. So there's been a lot of debate about counting calories, whether that's the right approach. Reducing carbs, is that the right approach? Intermittent fasting, whether the two-day-a-week fasting and five-day-a-week eating the same way or time-restricted feeding. How, how do you feel about those options? Well, I think my goal is always to make peace with food and to normalize their experience with food. And so if we look at just the origin of the word diet, which means way of life, that I'm trying to put food back into a proper perspective in life. And so is counting calories a proper perspective? I go back to personality. For some people, that's a comfort zone. It's something they're very schooled at and very familiar with. But in the end, if we could build a plate, if we could think about the color and the protein and what it's going to do and the fiber and the seasons, and if we can begin to go back to, shall I say, the, the harvest, the bounty, and begin to create positivity around food, moving away from restriction, talking about, well, you spoke of fasting. Fasting is a rest period. There should be a rest period. The body should be given a break from consumption. So looking at how do they pattern their day, where does food fit, what would the plate consist of, it's really about their perspective and beginning to create perhaps a new and healthier perspective around the goodness of eating and, like I said, the bounty or what nature gave us to eat. And then swapping out some of the more processed foods for more whole foods when possible or making the best choice wherever you might find yourself. So I'm just trying to help people to embrace it, and it no longer has to be the center of their universe, but they can get about living and enjoying the other things that make up life and addressing other aspects that they wish to, because this becomes a centerpiece for a lot of people. And I don't find that to be always the healthiest way. You asked about reducing carbs. Well, it depends on your starting point. For a lot of people, the carbs really would be helpful if they came down. But then we talk about what's the difference among carbs, right? The healthy carbs or the, the lower glycemic carbs, simply meaning that that doesn't raise your blood sugar quite so much. And the cascade of events that would normally follow don't have to follow quite so dramatically. So I love the question, and I would say that there's definitely a lot of hot issues out there, but there's always been and will probably always be. And so helping people kind of land back at home base and say, okay, what is good nutrition? What is my body asking for? And feeding it accordingly. Mary, this reminds me of what you always say. Um, I love your quote, good nutrition is good nutrition. So when we talk about so many different dietary approaches, it's almost like religion where they're, <laughs> they're common fundamentals that are associated with every single religion. So one of the markers that you notice with all diets is, is really cutting out anything egregious, trying to eat more whole foods, nothing in excess, making sure it's sustainable. So I love how you always go back to good nutrition is good nutrition. Circling back to what you said about helping people have a healthier perspective 
and making peace with food, so many of our patients will talk about their relationship with food and their history of, you know, the role of food growing up and the emotions that they have when they eat certain foods or, you know, eating because they're happy, eating because they're sad, eating because they're stressed. And sometimes I feel this way. I wish I had a degree in in psychotherapy without having a degree like that. How are you able to help people address their emotional relationship with food? Well, I would start by centering on nourishment and what is the body asking for and needing in order for them to accomplish what they're setting out to do. So for some people, they want to overcome fatigue or brain fog, or they want to be able to play with their grandchildren on the floor and be able to get up. And so we start to connect back to, and how would that happen, right? And so I have to begin to weave a wonderful tapestry for them with regard to nourishment being a form of self-love. And it goes back to that timeline. They've been giving themselves away, potentially, for such a long time that there's no room for them. And I have to bring that back into focus because in order to eat well or to choose nourishing foods or to relate well to food, they have to be the center of their own story. There has to be something that brings them back and helps them to be okay with coming back. It takes some time. And so we would be making changes in just some of the simple decision-making and the supply and how you set up the plate and where are you eating it and at what speed are you eating it? Are you enjoying it? So just some of the things that become external. But then we always have to kind of tie back to that internal piece which is going to be about, you know, did they have shame? Did somebody bring blame? Is there judgment? Did they experience bias? And acknowledge that. And I can say personally for 35 years in this business, being heard is such a prominent part of the healing process. So making time to hear the story, having them have moments that are very deeply emotional, being heard and acknowledged validated. And so moving in the direction where eating is, you know, there's a continuum. I see it in my mind all the time when it comes to just about anything we touch. But, you know, going from this place where for some people it's a necessary evil and for other people it's a place of coping and hiding and bringing them from whatever extreme they might be coming back to a sense of where they would feel greater peace. It's a long conversation and this is a chronic condition and it often takes a long-term relationship to work through and coordination of care with others such as yourselves. But it is a beautiful journey as we help our patients to arrive at the place that they almost thought wasn't possible. Yeah, You know, Mary, I bet a lot of people who are listening to this thought that uh, this session was going to be about you telling them exactly what to eat. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you what do you think about that? <laughs> well, I could. <laughs> um, and they could probably tell me a lot of what I would be telling them as well. We might fine-tune a little bit if they wanted to share how they go about it, why they eat, where they eat, even when they eat. And I could probably fill in some of the blanks, give them some creative solutions. But I would say it's much more about the context in which you're eating, how you feel about that food how that food makes you feel, and what else could we bring to bear that moves you forward? 
And that's where I go back to the coordination of care or beginning to introduce some of the lifestyle components where people learn how to manage stress in a non-food way and how people might look at the power of sleep in the decision-making process toward food. If I were to do some what we call low-hanging fruit, right, in our business, we call low-hanging fruit, pun intended, I would talk about the power of protein and front-loading your day with it and what that does to stabilize. And I would begin to introduce those kinds of things where it wouldn't be about, here, let me be a living brochure, but it would be much more about what I've learned from them in the process of listening and what they might be ready for. So Mary, it's been very popular for people to do what Dr. Ernie mentioned, um, time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting, and there's so many different versions of that. I find that many of our patients like to skip breakfast, but what I find is that so many patients when they come to see us are really eating so late into the evening and Mm -hmm. eating very late at night or even waking up in the middle of the night to eat. So we talk quite a bit about trying to transition calories earlier or front load the day. What are your feelings about timing of eating? Oh, I'm very much in favor of what you just described in terms of starting earlier in the day when the sun is high in the sky and serotonin levels are what they are. We're wanting to harmonize with all of the body and its biology, one of which is the circadian rhythm. And so the body is poised with the readiness of enzymes for digestion, appetite. There's a lot that can be learned by changing patterns. So the body is actually patterned. So if they're all currently eating late in the day and they don't feel like eating in the morning, perhaps they're still very much fueled from last night's meal. But also, it's a matter of sort of conditionings. And and I help people to do that transition where they can start small so they don't get nauseous or or rebel and begin to flip it so that the, the front side of the day has more because you're setting the trajectory for the day. You're setting hunger cues and what you might be grazing through all day or what kinds of things that you did eat when you finally started to eat that basically you're going to chase the rest of the day. And so if we can stabilize that before the day gets underway, and for most people, that's a very busy encounter, right? I mean, most people aren't idle. So if at the start of the day, we can set that in a positive direction, then the rest of the day, the decision-making isn't quite so hard. Coupled with that, I would also say that there's some planning that can be done so that the decision-making isn't a constant thing. There's a lot of value knowing what you got laid out for the day in terms of food and working your way through that. So I appreciate the question, and I think that the body is ready to do some different kinds of maintenance as the sun starts to set, and that putting the calories, as you say, the consumption in the beginning of the day is much more harmonized with biology. That's right. There's evidence that eating the same food, eating the same way early as opposed to late, you eat early, it can help you lose weight, you eat late, and it leads to metabolic syndrome and more weight gain just because you know if you eat just before bed there's no place for the calories to go besides your fat cells there's no opportunity for the calories to be metabolized by skeletal muscle or other organs which are at rest so i think that's a key point that people need to know if you're going to restrict the time of your eating we want it early not late 
It also, eating late, very much uh, can influence the quality of sleep. And of course, that is, as I came to you all those years ago to begin to work with you, that was always the beginning point, which is, how are you sleeping? Because it has everything to do with your decision-making capacity and your stress tolerance and the things that you hunger for the following day. So when we're metabolizing and processing and digesting all that food late in the day, we're not switching the gears towards sleep and rest that we're supposed to. And so it really impacts the next day quite heavily. We talk to patients a lot about how weight regulation is a chronic thing and how, you know, overweight and obesity we now consider to be chronic diseases, meaning that a long-term treatment approach is really necessary to treat this chronic disease. So much of what we focus on with our patients and what you focus on with your patients is figuring out how to develop a sustainable way of eating. What is your best advice on how to help people stick with the dietary strategy that they found and and maybe doable but you know life changes and there're different challenges and sometimes people get really off course so talking to people about getting them back on course when they get off course what is your best advice about keeping these dietary strategies sustainable i often will build more than one strategy an example of that would be the difference between a weekday and a weekend and how unstructured the weekend is and how for some people that's their undoing as compared to having to keep hours and keep a schedule during the week and it's much easier for them. But the weekend can really derail them. So that might be an ongoing situation where we say, okay, if this is what it looks like, then how do we make that work as compared to the other? And then we begin to, if we are relating with the individual through the sessions across time or the opportunity for them to tap back in and inquire or attend a group or a class, there's opportunity to begin to problem solve as these things come up. So it could be that vacations are coming, holidays are coming, in-laws are coming, kids are coming home from college, and it was all going swimmingly until it's not. And so we begin to step back and say, what can you anchor? What do you hold on to? What do you tether yourself to? And how do you pivot so that you don't lose ground, but that you can be responsive to what's coming your way? Because we have to acknowledge that a lot of those things that come their way bring stress. And so reminding them of things that we have covered because not everything can stay top of mind, where those things might have a place now where they didn't really latch on earlier, and then begin to strategize. To your point, it is chronic, but the relationship is also long-term in many cases where people have an opportunity to tap back in to their nutritionist or to their health coach and work through those things as they come up. Over the course of time, and to Dr. Roney's observation earlier about problem solving, when we go through this enough times, they can begin to problem solve for themselves. They, they get really quite good at it in terms of what are the steps, what am I going through, and how do I come out the other side? And the funny thing is about this is people are problem solving all the time. It's just often not turned inward. And so as we help people to build that skill, because that's where a lot of behavior change comes from, truly not just inf- information, but skill building, practicing with them and giving them those, you know, the credit, the attaboy. And as they have built those habits through small steps and tiny wins, it begins to strengthen. And we see people go on, and I know you do in the clinics, that we see people go on to great success and then just tap back in when they might need a little bit of extra support. So Mary, tell us about 
some of the patients you've seen where we'd be able to see the effect of personalization? Sure. I have in my mind, as you asked that question, two examples of moms who were faced with the challenges of looking inward because they've been serving their family in some capacity for many years. One mom was about to launch her twins to college and she'd been taking care of putting things on the table that they wanted. And it was time to look in the direction of how was she going to fill the gap and personalize her own nutrition and begin her weight loss journey. And so helping to acknowledge the transition period she was in and actually the grief that she was feeling at the change in role and the empty house was very instrumental in helping her to move in the direction of seeing the opportunity to nourish herself in this time and that it is a period of transition. Whereas another mother just felt inundated by fast food and takeout because whenever the in-laws visited, that's what was coming with them. And it came several times a week with the way the family gathered. And so how could she navigate that without offending people, but taking care of herself in that process? And so brainstorming and trying on ideas, because I could have many ideas, but the individual has to pick one up, look at it through their lifestyle or their lens of personality and say, yes, that one looks like I could try that and see how it goes and then we do a follow-up and we tweak it and they can go forward in strength. One other example is an individual, a gentleman whose whole career was around data. He's a data guy and one of the things that really helped him was to, he had the opportunity to track his blood sugar and it made a profound difference on his intake because he had data. And he was looking at what he was eating and what it was doing to his blood sugar. And he was sitting in the seat of empowerment. He could make a change in what he was choosing and see a direct correlation to what was happening as a result. So just finding the person in their story, meeting them in that place, and then working with them to craft a solution that feels like a fit to them and helping them to find themselves greater space that they could do these things in the place they find themselves now. Thank you so much for sharing these wonderful patient examples. It's very clear from the way you've been describing your relationship with patients and how you help them that you really work so hard to develop a partnership and really have a a coaching relationship with the patients because it's so hard for people to change behavior and they really need to develop a trust and, and have a good relationship with you to make this work. So Mary, to finish off this episode, we'd love to hear from you one piece of advice that can be a take-home clinical pearl for our listeners. I would say don't journey alone, that this is an opportunity for you to address so many things that accumulate, and it's an opportunity for you to make a lasting change. And so assembling your team, your support system that allows you the opportunity to look closely at the factors that are affecting you and to begin that process of change would be my best advice is don't journey alone. Thank you, Mary. That is wonderful, wonderful advice. We appreciate having you so, so much. It's just such a pleasure to listen to you and to hear about your years and years of experience with patients and what leads to success. Thank you very, very, very much for joining us and sharing all of this with the listeners. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to Weight Matters. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To learn more about how Dr. Saunders and Dr. Aroni are working to transform specialized treatments for chronic conditions through the best in medical science and advanced technologies, visit IntelliHealth.co backslash podcast. And be sure to follow, rate, and review this show wherever you listen to podcasts.